Hello and welcome. I'm Les Bubka and you're listening to Accidental Podcast or something like that. My today's guest is Mary Stevens, author, martial arts expert and club owner. How are you, Mary? I'm fine, thank you, Les. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, could you tell us something about you? How did you get involved in martial arts? What did you do? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I've always enjoyed um, the aesthetic of martial arts and thought it was really cool. Um, but um, I grew up in a, you know, quite a traditional family and, you know, we, we did girl activities. I had two sisters um, and uh, we were, um, you know, despite the fact that um, I'm huge, I was uh, um, taken to, you know, ballet and uh, other kind of appropriate things for, for girls to do. Um, but I was always fascinated by martial arts. And um, later when I had my children, um, there was a period when my son was getting bullied and um, I decided that I wanted him to start martial arts. And it seemed like a good time for me to start as well because um, I had the opportunity and I really liked, um, I liked um, the, the, the idea that um, you could train in something that's um, really cool, you know, good for you physically, but also um, had that element of personal development to it as well, which I, I really um, was attracted to. So I started martial arts when I was 30. So I'm now nearly 49. So I've been doing karate for 18 years. Mm. That was a quite, quite late starter. I thought that was a late starter at, at 17. But <laughs> yeah, um, no, I'm a really late starter. <laughs> So why, why did you choose karate? Well, um, it was more that I was looking for I was looking for personal development because of my son, and so um, what I was looking for wasn't specifically karate. Although I was very happy to do karate, um, I was looking for something that was going to help him develop positive body language um, and to be more bully repellent. Um, and it was, so I was looking for a, a school with the right ethos rather than a particular martial art. Um, so for me, it was because I found um, a good school locally that was really thinking about the life skills side of things. Um, that was why I began. So it wasn't really that I chose karate. It was that I chose a school that had a, a more holistic approach. Um, was it that straight away into the practical side of it or did you transition after uh, kind of dipping your toes in karate and seeing, oh yeah, that's sports wise, 3K and then you move to practical side? Um, well, the school that I was with um, had that kind of practical element from the start. Um, although I have to confess, I am quite fond of 3K karate just because uh, as, a, as a meditative exercise, as a you know, to feel strong and, uh, and so on. It's, uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice thing to do. I'm a fan of all types of martial arts, I have to say, um, for various different reasons, because I think there's so much to be gained that you can, um, you can draw the positives in whichever uh, martial art, so long as you know what you're doing, in that as long as you don't think that 3K karate is gonna help you defend yourself um, in an assault, as long as you, you know, do you, see, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. they're, they're, you have to be objective about what you're doing, I guess. And, you know, that's a whole different topic. Um, but yeah, so, so straight away, on one of my earliest sessions, my instructor had just come back from um, doing a course with Jeff Thompson. Mm -hmm. So one of my earliest sessions, we were pushing and swearing and um, making the fence and all of that kind of stuff. So my earliest memories of doing karate were actually um, in, the, in the kind of self-defense um, realm. So um, that's always been in it from the start for me. Um, but it's only in more recent years that I've really started to explore um, and articulate the differences between martial arts and self-defense. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking at, and, and that's what I love about how much practical karate discussion there is here in the UK because everybody's really kind of being analytical about it, valuing what's traditional, not just throwing away the traditional, um, but, um, but really having a great discussion around it, which is cool. Yeah, definitely. I think that, that with the 3K karate and whatever karate you're doing, is that the honesty to yourself and to your students that, you know, yeah, you know, we're doing 3K, we're not branding as a self-defense, 
that's what you get. Either you like it or not. I think that's the, the main thing which comes to um, speaking of. I do for mental health and health and well-being in general. Um, can you tell me what impact karate had or has still has for your mental health? Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important. Obviously, um, it. it Karate and mental health, I think, are um, a fantastic bond together. Um, and it's an area that I've looked into quite a lot, um, obviously not as much as you have, um, but it's, um, I see it all the time, particularly in managing anxiety. Um, with, uh, so I, I teach um, a lot of children, and I think this generation of children are really struggling with their mental health. Um, more than in previous years. And that's been really exacerbated in the last six months with the lockdown, um, tr transitioning classes into the virtual environment, which some students have taken well and some others not so well. Um, so in terms of me personally, I've been through um, anxiety and depression during the years when I've been um, doing karate. And we all know that when you go and train um, for lots of reasons, um, sometimes it's the rhythm and the repetition, sometimes it's the engagement with other people, but in a controlled and safe environment and so on. There are, there are so many positives to training karate, um, you know, while you're maybe struggling with your mental health. Um, so I'm a big fan of it, but I also know that for somebody who's suffering from depression, I've been close to um, people who've had severe depression and for whom getting to a class is, you know, impossible, um, uh, um, an obstacle that they can't make. And similarly, you know, sometimes you have children that, that get that um, fear and anxiety. And so ways of coming through those obstacles and finding bite-sized chunks that's the other nice thing about karate is that actually you don't have to practice it in a group. No. You still can get some benefits from practicing by yourself quietly um, in a non-threatening space. Um, although that can be a stepping stone towards more integration with other people and, um, you know, greater physical and mental health. Um, once you know some karate, it can benefit you in all sorts of ways, even when your mental health is at its worst. Um, so, you know, that's something that I think is important to bear in mind too. Definitely. Um, you said you're working with uh, with children a lot. I know that uh, you are stranded now in UK, but usually you are spending your time in India uh, running an awesome project. I, it's a shame I didn't know about it earlier. I learned it quite uh, late about it. But can you tell us something about that? Because I think it's a super amazing job you're doing there. Um, when I can get there. Uh, although at the moment we're working on Zoom, which is... Um, challenging, but also good to, to continue with things. So um, a few years ago, I became associated with um, an NGO called Fair Fight, um, which is based in the Netherlands um, by, um, and was founded by a couple of awesome people. Um, it's principally, it's about using um, martial arts to empower vulnerable women. Um, and the two main projects that we have are in India and in Zimbabwe. It started in Zimbabwe and then um, later we had a project in India. Um, and I project managed um, in India. And at the moment there's, there's three strands to that. Um, one is our original project, which is um, karate for some girls who live in a safe house. Um, so they are children whose um, parents are too poor to um, feed and educate them and um, they are looked after by a French NGO called um, Act and Help which operates in India as Ashadia Foundation um, and we've had also they've had a, a very turbulent year not only the pandemic but um, with paperwork issues they lost the house that they had and they're building a new house so at the moment they're having an anxious time um, trying to supervise the girls, but in their home placements, which as we know, leave them quite vulnerable as it is. So um, feeding them and um, just trying to, trying to encourage them still to be in education, but then all the schools at the moment are shut because of the pandemic. So 
Um, this has definitely been a challenge, although um, they're just beginning to get to the point where they can gather the girls again, which will be really good. Um, so my role in that has been to, um, to train and supervise the, um, so, so they were associated with the karate club. It wasn't really working too well. There were some communication issues. And um, it so when I was brought in, it was to help with the life skills side um, because the girls were learning some karate, but it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really changing them in the way that we felt that it could. Mm -hmm. Because I know I don't need to convince you that, that karate in itself can be a, a, a life-changing um, pursuit and for you know for these girls coming from the worst possible backgrounds um, to have you know from six years old upwards um, for some of them to have that ability to be able to feel physically confident also brings mental confidence um, and once we got the project kind of set up properly and they were training more frequently and um, with a good, better understanding of what they were doing, then we were getting better results in school. We could see them blossoming. We could see their confidence growing, even in the posture and the eye contact and the um, ability to own their own space um, was so dramatically improved. Um, and that was amazing to see, you know, over a period of a couple of years, watching how uh, twice a week. So I go out twice a year uh, when there isn't, you know, coronavirus. And so at those six month intervals to see the girls growing fitter, stronger, and they loving to practice their karate in between. They get up early in the morning and go through their katas on the roof before school. And they like to get down in the cellar and put their pads on and, and um, run around sparring with each other to burn off some energy and, um, you know, it was really fantastic to see what a difference that could make for them. So that was one aspect of the project. Um, and then one of the main things that that really made me consider was the differences between karate and self-defense practice, um, because I was under no illusions that what they were learning was great for them um, in terms of their mental and physical well-being. Um, but it's not in, and that in itself is a deterrent. I mean, I wouldn't ever say that that's not gonna be beneficial to them in terms of self-defense because you hope that you become the sort of person that looks like, you know, somebody that you wouldn't want to attack anyway. But um, the sorts of things that are taught widely as self-defense um, in karate in India are not what you or I would talk about in terms of self-defense. We see a lot of static practice, uh, a lot of maybe unrealistic scenario practice. And it's not, I feel like it's the kind of thing that can put people in more danger because yeah. you know they think they have skills that they don't really have. Um, so for me, learning to teach that gap, the difference between what is karate, what is self-defense became super important. And also um, there's a lot to be done with, you know, self-defense interventions, like a day course, uh, short courses here and can make such a big difference to um, a woman's ability to manage herself or anybody, but my, I'm, my focus is for the women. There's a, there's a real problem with dropout in education, basically. Um, harassment and um, and um, mental health again uh, feeling okay to study um, in the local university in Varanasi where I work um, there was one point where the women were rioting because their ongoing level of harassment that was considered to be acceptable was so detrimental to their ability just to exist um, that it was just, you know, the dropout rate was incredible. Um, assaults were just too commonplace. Um, and it's clear that what's, um, if you can equip girls at age 16, 17, 18 with good skills for situational awareness, threat assessment, de-escalation, uh, all of these things can be incredibly valuable and can be career changing um, in terms of their ability to access education. 
So that's a, a, um, something that I've been working on in developing um, courses that are context appropriate, because clearly what works for a 17 year old here is very different to what works for a 17 year old in India. It's a very different environment. Um, and then recently I've been working with um, a group who are fantastic in that they're a pressure group. They're another NGO called Red Brigade and they work with survivors of acid attacks and um, brutal rapes. And um, they get into the slums and they try and draw in uh, women and children to help them learn some basic self-defense skills because it's actually, you know, it's the most dangerous place in the world to be a woman. Levels of domestic violence are horribly high with no alternatives for, you know, this is one of those situations where you can't pick up a phone and get yourself out of a situation. Um, if you leave your abusive husband, maybe you'll die for having nothing to eat. Maybe your family won't take you back because of the disgrace. We hear so many stories all of the time about um, women that are stuck in violent situations. And it's one of the things that I personally find difficult in terms of training is I, you know, I ran, um, I ran a workshop for some women in Nepal um, a few months ago, and we talked through street um, street skills and uh, all of this kind of um, tactics that you know are great and accessible, and they understand, and, and that was all really good. Went through some Cooper codes and, and this kind of stuff, but then when it got to the question and answer, one of the women said, "And what do you advise for a, for a woman who's?" husband regularly beats her and she has nowhere to go and you're just like I know that in in that particular culture she's not going to find support outside of the household and there is nowhere for her to go and I can't say you know call a charity or that's um you know something that from in terms of how I manage things from my end um, it's been important for us to sort of build a structure of consultation and supervision and mentorship because we really want to be able to support the women that are doing incredible things for each other on the ground. But at the same time, they're absorbing stories of horrors. We're absorbing stories of horrors. And you have to kind of process that in order to keep it all working. So that's been quite a learning curve as well, because sometimes I, I might be sitting here teaching a pad drill or something, and we talk about how that applies to the women that they're working with, and I'll turn off my Zoom, but I can't turn it off in my head. And I go to teach my own classes, you know, and now I'm there with my happy little children, five, six years old, doing their um, karate on the spot, but my head is still going, and what about the people that can't? you know, turn off and walk away. And we talk about, I remember I did this fantastic um, seminar with Ian and um, Christian Vedavart last year. And um, Christian had this brilliant set to talk about, um, you know, lots of tactical awareness on your retreat and making sure that you go home safely. And that really, you know, that's that became part of my teaching as well when I'm teaching my own students in terms of, uh, I work with Jamie Club a lot and Jamie also uh, is very tuned into the dangers of, you know, you, you finish a self-protection situation and you're very adrenalized and you're at risk. You know, you might walk into a bus, you might trip over a dustbin lid, you might walk into their friends who've just, you know, come around the corner uh, and you're not safe until, you know, you reach a point of safety. But what when there is no point of safety, when there is nowhere in the world that you can be in code white, that you can be safe? It's just like, wow, that's that's quite a lot to take in. It must have been a really big shock culturally going from the super safe. I think we are super safe in UK to, to deal with such a thing. I can't imagine. And I think that us in Europe um, are so comfortable that we even cannot imagine even if we try to imagine, we are not able to grasp the actual uh, feeling how it is to be in that environment. Is, is that kind of make sense? So much. Um, so Rory, Rory Miller's recent work, um, the, um, the deep brain 
the, his new book um, talks quite a lot about um, like training your senses. So like learning to trust your instincts and um, you know smells and sounds and you know going out on sensory walks so that you can kind of pick out dangers and that kind of thing if that makes sense I'm oversimplifying that massively but mm -hmm. it was a point that I really related to because when I first went to India I was um it, I, I don't think I've ever been so scared in all my life um and you know we got literally when we got there the people that were supposed to be meeting us uh, were sick because that's such a you know everything there will make you sick and even if you're being super careful um it, you know when i'm project managing out there i'm so horrible to my team i won't let them um i mean this pandemic is just like this is how we are in india all the time it's like you know carry your sanitizer everywhere wash your hands don't everything is going to try and kill you if you put it in your mouth so you know don't touch anything tie your hand, all of this stuff um so the, basically the people that had arrived first to set up were already sick. So we arrived at the airport, which is like an hour and a half away from where we were staying. And we, the people that we thought were gonna meet us were not there. And there was just this guy with like fair fight. So it's my fair fight mm -hmm. t-shirt. Uh, a guy with fair fight um, on a sign, but he didn't speak any English. And I, I don't speak any Hindi. Well, I speak now like three or four phrases, but not very much. And so like we followed him and, you know, so we're getting in a car with somebody that we don't know um, and we have no communication with him. And then we're in India and like, so we're driving along the street and there's, you know, five people on a motorbike and, and a cow and a rickshaw and the, the chaos, the bet everybody tells you how, like what a sensory overload it is, but, when you you can talk when you talk about it you're making a list right so you're getting those things one at a time it's like everything all at once like relentlessly and you just uh, everything's so scary and weird that you don't and amazing and colorful and beautiful and vibrant and all of those good things as well but you know when it's suddenly all the smells and all the noises and all the sights and sounds you know there's no pavements there's no push chairs that babies are under somebody's arm on a motorbike with no helmets and and you're you're just like what how how do you process that how and the noise oh my god the noise uh, how do you figure out what's dangerous and what's not dangerous in that it takes quite a while now when i go i adjust much more quickly because i'm going to a familiar place and i know i have my fixed points on the road i know which vendors are helpful I know where I'm going, I'm kind of grounded. But um, to start off with, it was, it was insane. Just really um, overwhelming doesn't even begin to come close. So yeah, it, um, that was quite a challenge. And it was not something, some people just like really embrace that. And we've had people on project as well that have frequently been to that part of the world, but I hadn't, I hadn't really been beyond Europe. so it was quite um overwhelming is yeah i'll just go with overwhelming i i had a little bit of a taste of that when we went to my, my wife is half thai so we went to visit right. thailand and the traffic is kind of similar you you see there's two lines and there's five cars along each driving and the one going other directions nobody's uh, taking any care any notice of rules and stuff like that it's just i'm sure it's not as bad as in, in india but I know kind of what you mean. It was overwhelming. Yeah. Um, is there a, point, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that is there a way that um, people, listeners, myself, can support your project? Um, oh, okay. uh, donations and stuff like that. Is is there anything? Sure. Absolutely. Um, the Fair Fight website takes donations, um, and at the moment, I'm so as soon as as soon as I'm allowed to travel. I'll be going back um, and then that project at that point will be um, resuming the karate classes for the girls and re-equipping the dojo in the new place, um, working with uh, sixth form, so, so smart girls that have come out of the villages 
So from underprivileged background, trying to help them learn skills to access university, that's working with Project Mala. And then this self-defense project for the, um, for the women from the slums with the Red, Red Brigade, training their trainers. Um, so there's like those three aspects, all of which we could really benefit from funding. So oh, cool. um, I'm going yeah. to put links to all of them in the description and uh, your listeners uh, take your wallets out and off you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you, we're talking about a lot of uh, women uh, in India having problems, but as well, we've got the issue, I think, is not talked enough in, in Europe and martial arts in particular that you, Tracy, uh, and a few others, which of course I forgot the names now. Uh, Michelle from from States. Um, yes. What's the John's wife name? Eileen. <laughs> yeah. Um, you are the very few who run a club, a practical karate club. Why is that? Why we don't see more female instructors? Um, why? 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 Um. Well, it's a it's a really tricky question. I think there's just so many different reasons. I mean, karate has always been a male-dominated sport. Um, and I'm, you know, passionately in favor of women doing martial arts. I think I think it should be compulsory a part of school education for sure. Um, I mean, I've come out of a school system which I know is very um messed up. Um, and there's so many ways that the education system would benefit from um more children doing martial arts. That's definitely true. Um but you know that it's one of those situations where some martial arts are more accessible to women than others. Um, karate, I think, is pretty good um, overall. I know that you're, you're, you're absolutely right that there's nowhere near enough female instructors, particularly female club owners. It's definitely not really the career path that my parents had planned for me. Um, when they smiled fondly over my cradle, what will she be? <laughs> you know, <laughs> going to run a karate club, really? Um, but um, I think it's um, it's brilliant that I, I love the fact that Tracy's doing such. You know, she's just set up her club, and she's such a beacon, really, for um, practical karate. Um, so I'm chuffed to bits for her um, that that's going really well. Um, I've been doing it for a while, obviously now, but um, I found that there's, oh, I had a really interesting conversation with the Bunkai Bastards about this um, a couple of months ago. And we talked about the number of ways that the environment is stacked against women in a way that men don't really realize. Mm -hmm. um, and also that men sometimes um, for reasons they really need to get over a lot of the time, um, don't feel comfortable working with women either. Um, and a little bit of education um, can go a long way in terms of that. Um, my feeling is a lot of it goes back to early conditioning. So when I'm dealing with small children, I'm already behind the curve because a lot of those girls have from the very beginning been dressed in pink and um, given princess toys. And, you know, like, what does a princess do? She smiles and she waves, mm. yeah? There's not enough princesses that are, you know, doing the gallant stuff. The prince is noble and he's doing all of these things. And, and, and unless it's a, a very modern story, then you're not getting that in the princesses. Um, yeah. I'm lucky I know that, you, that my, my daughter is running with a hammer, playing cars, and yesterday we've been playing Vikings. So we can't <laughs> Definitely. But you see, it, it is that it, studies have shown that if a boy falls over when he's little, then he's encouraged to brush himself off and take deep breaths. And, and, and a girl is picked up and cuddled. And Not in our house. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. You're just brutally beating up your children because it's good for them, which is great. I appreciate that. But there's always a balance to be struck, but it has both, you know, from the point of view of being a sensitive man, you know that actually that's bad for the men as well. Mm. You know, that there has to be a balance and it's okay for boys to cry, of course, and should be encouraged. And it's okay sometimes to tell girls that they need to take a deep breath and, and, and be tough, think tough thoughts. Um, 
And this is a really major thing for me when I'm bringing in um, students at a kind of pre-primary age, that for children to develop independence, they need to have those self-soothing skills and also be building an emotional vocabulary to talk about how they feel so that they can be heard. Um, and that's why I believe the most important self-protection work is happening at age four, five, six, where you learn how to deal with somebody pushes you and you need to take back your space and be clear that that's not okay. Or somebody snatching your toys in nursery or you know in the sandpit and and we spend quite a lot of time like role playing and discussing around this so that children from an early stage learn not to fall into habits that and also not to be the one that snatches not to be the one that pushes um and you know some of the exercises that we do are, are really around kind of going through those creating situations in which children win in which children lose in which they have to be compassionate um, or have opportunities not to be compassionate so that we can role play how that should work. And then by the time, if they're learning that at age four and five, then they become much more emotionally grounded by the time they're nine and 10 and beyond. Um, and so that's, I think, another fantastic pivot that martial arts can have um, for, for children, it, that it stands to benefit girls to make them stronger and more assertive, but also to allow boys to be, um, to have a, an emotional range that isn't otherwise really permitted. Yeah, yeah. We, we took the consci consciousness decision with my wife when he had Max first, so four years ago. But you know, it's, although he always, his first word was tractor and car. Yeah. Uh, so he's very much into the, the, the boy stuff, but he always had a choice of, you know, if you want a doll, if you want to dress up as a princess, that's fine, you're just experimenting and going. I mean, it's kind of uh, same with Lauren, the younger one, where on the beginning she was just exposed to boys' toys or trains, trucks. So, so now when she sees a doll, she just immediately goes and doll. But if she wants to play with the cars, it's fine. If she wants to play with Vikings, it's fine. I, have, you, I think you have to allow children, like you said, explore all the possibilities, you know, and don't limit them and don't project your expectations on them. I think that's the main thing. And that's so hard as a parent. Mm, yeah. So hard. Yeah. But 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 really important, as you say, like recognizing when it's what what they want and when it's what you want. You have that with parents of, of students that you teach all the time, is that particularly when it gets to that point where maybe the child um, or young person at that point, maybe they're they're not gonna make it all the way to black belt because mm -hmm. it's not for everyone. And helping parents to understand that that's their ambition and not the child's ambition can be really hard for a parent to accept. Mm. I mean, hopefully you inspire kids enough that they want that and that they pursue it all the way through. But realistically, it's a very hard journey. And unless it's something that you passionately want for yourself, um, mm. it's not gonna happen. Yeah, I know, so, you know I'm, I'm trying to, I tried, I gave up on this, but you know, I was really into Max, yeah, you wanna do karate, let's do this. So although we're doing some of the uh, uh, self-defense drills for him to school, so he's just aware that, you know, saying, stop, don't touch me, mm. don't push me, yeah. it's good. But if I want to, if I do karate, he just looks at me, yeah, whatever, that's, uh, you do yeah. this, I'm going to do practice my stuff running. So he goes run. Um, so, but it was very hard to not try to push him, you know, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Just let him be him, him, him his own person. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I can see how it's, you know, difficult it is. I mean, in lots of ways, my kids didn't really have a choice because I was working um, and so they had to come with me. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was just part of their week. But once they got to the age where they could really, they really had to choose and they needed to choose, then they chose differently. Um, so my son went as far as second queue um, and he... Um, and, and at that point he stopped. So I'd like to think that he gained some useful skills during that time, but it was not something that his heart was not, was not in it. And that's fine. Um, again, being um, on the autistic spectrum, so um, having Asperger's syndrome and so on, he was more vulnerable. You know, that was why we started, uh, why I, I started him training in the first place. And he, uh, during his time at school, suffered um, two serious assaults um because um because of being different um and 
because perhaps not necessarily really being tuned into his environment because he's very internal in his thoughts. And that still worries me because he is, um, he's really smart, but he spends a lot of time being stupid because, you know, that's sometimes what smart people do. Um, but whereas my daughter, um, you know, she stayed with it and she's really fascinated by all sorts of martial arts. And so she got a black belt in karate and she studied um, JKD and BJJ and she really enjoys her weaponry work. Um, she works with me in Fair Fight as well. Um, and that's really cool. I think she'll always train. Uh -huh. um, she trained with me all the way through lockdown. So I was lucky because I had somebody to punch, yeah. um, which most people didn't. Yeah. I've, um, got my, but, I've got my wife to punch me, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, a little, little bit of a little bit of balance there. It's all, all good. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, it's hard in terms of um, expectations. You have to let them choose. But, um, you know. Yeah. Um, so from uh, teaching children to writing for children, Tell me about your love life. Thank you for two books signed, uh, and Max really, really liked them. I'm waiting for Lauren to be old enough to read them. Um, tell me about the project of Warrior Monkeys. Okay, well, let me just, this is the anniversary, right, of the publication of this. Yes, thank Congratulations you. Congratulations to you. <laughs> thank what you. What a great way to, yeah, yeah. One year published, that's fabulous, cool. Yes, so fellow author, um, let me, here's some I prepared earlier, um, so. Because you've got the new one coming out, isn't it? It's just come out new one, yeah? Yeah, so oh, yeah. it comes we, we out. Now. We've, got, we've got copies now. Um, it is um, it's published on November the 5th. Mm -hmm. So that's two weeks yesterday. Um, yeah, so that was an unexpected, that was a plot twist. It really was. Um, when I was in India, I when I'm in India, I write a blog all the time. Um, it's kind of good for me processing things um, and sharing the work. So we, a lot of what we do obviously is funded from people in this country and other places around the world. So I like to give them, when we're on project, I like to give them access to everything that's happening. Um, so every day I write up what we do and put in pictures and then they can relate more to the actual people because it's really, otherwise you sort of, give money into a void and you don't really know. Whereas every, every time people give money to Fair Fight, when I'm there, I'm, I'm, I'm literally like using that in a, in a way that will help people all the time. So it's kind of nice to be able to share that direct connection. Anyway, so when, so I had, and I used to be an English teacher. So um, like all English teachers, I, I kind of uh, believe that I'm a fantastic writer and that's just kind of goes with the territory as well. Um, um, yeah, so one of the, um, one of the editors at OUP contacted me and let me know that they were recruiting writers for, uh, a, a stories, uh, a series of stories, which was originally going to be called Samurai Monkeys, I think, but then they decided to shift it away from a Japanese focus and make it more, um, generic, um, and so it was renamed Warrior Monkeys. And the idea was that if you wanted to write for them, they were going to recruit samples. And if, if they liked your sample, then they would choose you to write the series. So it was um, not an opportunity that was gonna come by again. You know how it is as a writer, having somebody ask you to publish something is very rare these days. Um, it's a it's a difficult world to to, to be in and so um i went all out you know their initial plot sketch uh, was okay but and i said i can write this and i wrote kind of like how that would look i said but you could also consider this and then i mapped out like characters and the whole like world and the series and they wanted and this is really important to me they wanted two male monkeys as the leads and I was like, that's a missed opportunity, surely, because you know, you're targeting this at ages like six and seven. And where's the female role models here? If you want two monkeys as your two leads, then why are you not having one feisty female that's always getting into trouble alongside her, you know, her friend who maybe is the more shy, more bookish, more, you know, so it was, 
you know, for me, it was a no brainer to say, you need to have a gender balance here. Um, and we did the same with like the main characters that they had split. I kind of put in some female leaders and a mixture of different characters into the world because children are incredibly impressionable at that age. Mm. And uh, I think it's really important for both male and female um, role models to exist. Um, you know, equally important as for the boys as for the girls to be reading those. Um, yes, yeah, so obviously the story had a happy ending in that I was recruited to do the work, which was great, and got to work with a fantastic artist as well. And then I had fun in the three stories, putting martial artists that I know into the book as monkeys or different animals. So um, my um, fabulous um, mentor and hero, Stephen Chan, who's a 10th Dan at um, Soas Jindokai. Uh, he appears as the, like the Yoda figure. Um, I did ask his permission, um, but what's funny is that I give the artist pictures of the, the real people yeah. and the kind of monkey that they're gonna be. And then he kind of produces uh, like the, the pictures so that they do have the same facial expressions, which is hilarious. I love it. Um, uh, my friend Guy from, um, from the Netherlands, he, who's in this latest book as, as a Yeti. Um, so uh, we kind of decided to leave his glasses out of it, but they're kind of there in the, in the, in the portrait as it is anyway. And yeah, and so there's, um, that was a fun thing to be able to um, use martial arts ideas teaching um, for children. Yeah, that's a really good idea, I like it. <laughs> um, how, uh, how did you put all your martial art experiences into the book or did you try to stay away from your experience and write um, kind of more uh, fantasy uh, based on uh, how the people expect and perceive martial arts from the movies? Because that's the big difference, isn't it? How the people see martial arts and how the martial arts actually are. Yes. Um, for me, it was a good opportunity of speaking to the people that think that it's dangerous to teach martial arts to children because they're going to learn to fight um you know and not in a good way so um yeah there's a lot of um really influential mentors that i've had um over the years like um dave kovar in california who is amazing at teaching martial arts philosophy to children uh his work is phenomenal in the way that he makes it very accessible and explains the concepts um, in a very relatable way. So obviously everything that I've put into the book doesn't really belong to me. It has come from the influence and teaching of other people. Um, and so there's lots of opportunities where the monkeys have to learn stuff and their senseis will teach it to them. And that's very much me taking the lessons that I teach my own students and putting them into a world of monkeys. But you know what's really interesting in lots of ways, you talk about it is fantasy and you know that was the idea is that it's created in this you know mythical islands and on all of these things and it's talking monkeys and that kind of thing. But the reality was I had to spend so much time researching important things like um, what temperature it would be in the mountains, what's the oxygen um, saturation up there, or um, what, what, what makes volcanoes explode and what different types of volcanoes there are um, so that you can kind of um, figure out. I, I needed them to be able to go into tunnels near volcanoes. I'm like, well, but volcanic rock, how do you get? It? So there was just loads of, um, loads of real things that you think I can believe a talking monkey, but I'm not prepared to accept the gi wrapped around the wrong way or a grip wrong on the bow staff and that kind of thing. So that was consultation that I had to have with the artist. Like in one scene he drew, um, they were, all the monkeys were training in the dojo and he had them lined up. And I'm just like, no, they're lined up in the wrong belt order. You can't, <laughs> you can't have that. So <laughs> it's just those little things that you want to get right, even though like, you know, nobody cares really, but. You, I, I care, and some of the readers would care. Yeah, You'd notice. I, yeah, yeah, I would notice, yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of, I, I, I'm full of admiration for you because I was thinking, well, if I would like to write a story, I have no clue. If it's not based on my experiences or in relation to karate, 
my brain goes, meh, can't do it. I can't be bothered. So I think it takes a lot of imagination and, and, and will and research, like you said, to actually set up the, the world to um, work with. That was where I really benefited from working with an experienced editor. Um, because I was quite naive, obviously not having done it before. And before we started, she made me really map out the whole world and work out what the rules of the world were. And I, I've got early, lots of early, I, I don't draw very well, but I've got lots of early pictures of like maps that I drew. So I knew how long it would take to get from one island to another island. And um, so that there was consistency in, in the world because she says nothing worse than starting off a story without really having thought it through because you're going to end up with like some serious limitations on what you can do with it. And then like the writing and the rewriting. So the, the storyline had to be agreed with, um, with the editorial team. Um, I wasn't allowed to just write what I wanted. There was a lot of pushback against certain things. Um, like in one, there were in the, the second book, uh, spoilers, somebody dies. And I had to get, that had to go through like different levels of committee as to whether or not that was going to be okay and how that was allowed to happen um, in terms of the readership. Um, and so that there was quite a lot of uh, like work done by committee, but then there was some really like, in the first book, there's a big fight at the end. And I realized when I wrote it, um, that there were too many bears in the fight because the bear is kind of like too powerful and um, the fight wasn't going to go on for long enough because because of the bears that were in it so then I had to go back and write one of the bears out to like send them off to do something so that by the time the, the so that they weren't in the right place so because I was like <laughs> I have this chart on my wall with the different sizes of the monkeys so I can see who could legitimately fight who like a mandrel could take on a colobus monkey just about um but you know that with a um a, like a snow monkey would definitely not be able to so just like looking at the different sizes um uh to make sure that the, the fight was going to be balanced and like that so so then it was just like okay so there's three dogs and a mandrel versus uh, a colobus and and uh you know all of these different like different types of monkeys just like, okay no, that's going to be all right. They can fight. <laughs> so um, things that you were, uh, you know, I wouldn't have expected that before I set off. But uh, yeah, trying to, I, trying I think, to make I it think balance. People don't appreciate how much um, planning goes to a children's book. Everybody says, oh, a children's book, you just write a story and it's fine. And what you're describing is just like logistics for, uh, I don't know, um, super operation, like military operation. But you see, you've met the average eight-year-old, right? They're really into that stuff. And when you meet readers and they ask you questions, they're, they're all over this stuff. They really, you know, you, people are just like, oh, kids, kids are dumb. No, kids are not dumb. And they want it to be right. They want it to be right. And, and they will say, how come that didn't, you know, et cetera. And it's nice to be able to say, well, interesting you ask about that. We thought about this because, you know, actually, um, so one of my black belts, there's this, they really, the editors really wanted this cover. All right. It's very Indiana Jones, right? They're running away from the boulder. That boulder gave me more trouble than anything else in the whole book, because I wasn't happy that they should run away from a boulder. If we didn't know like what happens to the boulder, like if the boulder goes, every time they go underground, the boulder triggers, then what puts the boulder back? Is there an infinite number of boulders that wouldn't that wouldn't work? Um, and then, like in the end, I got some of my um, first cues and black belt physics students working working on like what quantity of magnetic stuff there could be in the rock so that you get enough push for it to go up so that it worked on kind of like a um, a U bend mm -hmm. so that the boulder would reset on one side so that the next time somebody came through it would still trigger. None of that is in the book whatsoever. But if any kid asks me, how come the boulder triggers every time? I'm so ready. I'm all over this stuff. I can draw diagrams and everything. <laughs> I think that's what the other thing which I'm finding is kind of in relation to children, autistic students. Um, 
they just sense straight away that you're bullshitting them. If you go with any bullshit, it's just like, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and they they are not uh, willing to not tell you about it. Uh, they are straight to the straight to the point. Yeah, yeah, you you're not you're not right. Yeah, um, definitely. And that's one of the massive value of having lots of autistic students is that they keep you honest. Um, and that you are, you know, it's compulsory for you to be able to defend your actions. You can't just get away with bullshitting them. Mm. Uh, so that's that's a real value. Yeah. Um, future projects? Um, I kind of feel like I've got enough on. Um, it's, um, it's really, my, my school is always the most important thing to me. I do other stuff um, and I love the other stuff that I do. Um, but, you know, my, my daily teaching is, is my bread and butter and it's, it's my passion as well. Um, I've done other jobs, but this is the job that I love doing. Um, and my commitment is very much to my students and my students support my work with Fair Fight, which is brilliant. Um, and you know they're they're very positive about my writing and other stuff like that. But the fair fight is my kind of is very purposeful for me. It's a very important thing for me to do. Um, and same like my own teaching my own students. That's something that's a massive purpose for me. And you know we students in my school that I've taught for a very long period of time. Um, that's that's really valuable. That's the nice thing about being a karate teacher rather than a school teacher where you kind of, you know, students come and go um, over the years. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, really. Um, it feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, could you just um, tell us where we can find you, uh, where people can find you? Uh, I'm going to put all the links below, but um, if you just spell them out as well. Sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm based um, south of Oxford. I teach in Oxford. Um, I'm, I'm, and I'm. My website is uh, athenakarate.com. Uh, I and then obviously look for Fair Fight um, as well. I do have a, a website for my writing as well, which is warriormonkeys.com. But I don't update it very often because I'm a bit rubbish like that. <laughs> uh, Mary, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It's really nice to talk to you too. And I hope that very soon we'll be able to do a seminar in person. I'd love to come to your Karate for Mental Health seminar. That would be I, would, cool. I, would, I would love you to teach on one of, one of them. I booked Tracy. She, uh, after some resistance, she, she managed to be convinced. And I think it was your fault as well, because she resisted. I, I, then she sent a message. Oh, Mary said I should do it. <laughs> and she absolutely should. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it'd be really good. Uh, she's got a lot to share. And I think that would be really cool. All right, cool. Thank you for your time. No worries. Take care.